Well, good morning once again, page 866 in your church Bibles to the book of Jude, please. And while you're turning there, let me again welcome everyone who's new to West Cohasset. It's fantastic that you're here. My name is Joe Franzone and I serve here as the pastor and I think I've already met some of you already during our coffee time. So, so just a reminder while you're turning there that after our service, we're going to have a potluck luncheon to celebrate World Mission Sunday and to express some thanks to Peter and Laura Olson for coming today and giving us an update on the Black Forest Academy. Um, as we conclude, I'm going to ask Peter and Laurel, there you are, if you would go first in our potluck service, um, then we can all eat, but you have to go first. So when you get into the um, gym, out the door there, down the hall to the right, when you sit at a table, there's going to be a, a name tag that you can please put your first name in and, and stick it on and that just get us a way to keep getting to know each other. So, this is World Mission Sunday and we're going to go straight to prayer. And this particular congregation has set aside this Sunday as World Mission Sunday in the whole month. And so it behooves us to pray to our God and our Maker for the nation. So let's bow together now, please. Our gracious God, this particular congregation which completely belongs to you, we have set aside this month of March to think globally about the need for Christ in places that most of us have never been. So we pray as you've taught us to pray, believing that it is good and acceptable in your sight to plead with you for the salvation of every man and every woman and every young person who as of this moment have not come to entrust themselves to the person of Christ as the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world and since such terrible agony, eternal agony awaits them if they continue to remain outside of your Son and since this is not a fantasy but it is reality we would ask you, Father, please to look with compassion on those in the world that lie under the control of the evil one. For Jesus' sake, cast out the prince of darkness who has blinded their minds so that they do not believe. We would plead with you, Father, to make known your way of salvation through the whole earth and make the spiritually dead, because you're the only one that can, make the spiritually dead alive in Christ as the gospel is given. And in this, Father, we plead with you for our supported missionaries and Christian missionaries and missions around the world that they would keep before them the Great Commission and may they never subtract from it, add to it, or ignore it ever. For as we've said, and you've said through the pen of the Apostle, how can anyone believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear and decide if there's no evangel? And how can there be an evangel if they are not sent? Therefore, Lord of the harvest, send out workers locally here and globally in your field. And so give to Christ the nations as his inheritance. And may these mission organizations be given what they need to preach Christ and him crucified, to establish churches and support missions and reveal Christ with good words first and then good deeds. And may the burdens that come with gospel ministry be removed on dads and moms and kids and couples and individuals who serve. May they find their joys 
all of them, and their sufficiency, all of them, only in Jesus. And finally, may Jesus Christ be preached in Asia, Africa, Europe, North and South America, Australia, and Antarctica. May he be preached again and again from pole to pole, from sea to sea. May it be known that in our place condemned Christ stood and that Jesus who was crucified is the Jesus who is alive, that is king, that is soon returning and offers himself as their only Savior. So please, Father, please make these things so here and make them, them so everywhere. And now as we open your word and desperately sense and understand our complete need of you to, to come down on us and, and help us, help me, if anything good would come over these minutes, we would ask these things now for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Now, as always, if you have any questions about Christ or the Bible or what you heard today, I would love to try to answer those questions when our time is done. Let's just read verse 3. 3 and 4 is where our interest lies in Jude. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt a hat to write to you and urge to you, you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Well, as you may know, something terribly was wrong in the church that Jude is writing to. The whole thing is sad and, and creepy and quite disturbing. And of course, what was taking place there has, has played itself out frequently in the church of Jesus Christ since the very beginning. There is this emergence in the church of a certain collection of people who are having a deadly influence on the lives of the followers of Christ whom Jude is writing to. And so what you need to do immediately is place yourself in the context which Jude writes into, which is what faithful Bible interpreters do. If they want to be honest and they want to be accurate with the text, they immediately uh, find out what is happening in the time and place and circumstance that the writer finds himself in, and then, and only then, do they begin to interpret the text. So if we do this, what we find is that Jude writes into a context where outside the church... There is no tolerance for Christianity at all. The world that he, uh, that he writes in is far worse than ours in these things. It is brutal. It is pagan. It is very sensual. And it is openly anti-Christian. So many of the proclaimers of the gospel who lived at this time, and I'm sure you, many of you know this, and church worshipers, had to essentially embrace the large potential for martyrdom. Because to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord at this time often meant that you were signing your own death warrant. And if you ask the sensible question, what was the church of Jesus Christ doing that caused such resentment and such mistreatment and persecution? The honest answer to that question would be that the church of Jesus Christ in this context in the first century was doing exactly what Jesus Christ said that they were to be doing. They were worshiping Jesus Christ consistently as public worship, the church, and they were by life and by lip proclaiming his gospel and nothing else very clearly. And so that gospel was a given message. It was simple and it was clear and it was unchanging. And this is it. As you think about our everyone one um, church campaign for the Easter season, if, if you're unsure about the gospel, then listen carefully because this is in a, a caption, if you would, of the gospel. 
Our sin has offended the one true and living God. He's offered us a way of escape only in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who really lived and really died even though He was really deity. And He died for our sins that offended a holy God who, who rules over all things. And now Jesus is alive. And Jesus offers Himself to you by substituting His suffering and His death for our selfishness and sin. So repent and believe. And enjoy the given power to live a new life in Christ. Relying on Christ only. Always. And His finished work for your standing with God. Or, or reject this. Reject this altogether and be eternally condemned by a holy God. Remaining outside of Christ forever. And the place that the Bible describes one way as a lake of fire. And another way eternal punishment. Now that's first century Christianity. And so while they were not perfect at this, we understand that they stayed on that given line. They stayed on the given line and they spoke the given message and they were pointing always, listen carefully, they were always pointing to to Christ, to the substitutionary once and for all work of Christ for the basis of their belief and the basis of their behavior and always their standing before God. They they were not pointing people to to, to an idea They were not pointing them to their own convictions. They were not pointing them to a party, a political party, but to a person, the living Christ. And they were bidding people to trust in Him. And as you know, some did. And yet, despite all that hostility outside the church, because of, and and this is where we need to listen, only because of the gospel, where do we find Jude's initial concern? Right, right off the bat in verse 3, where is his initial concern? Which takes us to our first point. If you have a worship folder, you can flip it in the back and there you'll see the salvation we share. Verse 3a. Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, some translations say, although I was eager to write to you about our common faith, and in this, we need to see at least two things. And we have to take note of, and, and if you're new, the first point's always longer than the second and third. I don't know why it is. I'm trying to work out of that, but, it, but anyway. So don't be scared if you're like, he, he's, he's going to be here forever. No, he's got about another 30 minutes. So in the difficult culture that Jude writes to, okay? Horrible, violent, anti-Christian. Where do we find him initially, again, initially working hard to write about verse 3, the very thing that made it so hard for Christians to begin with in in the first place. He was writing about the gospel, the the salvation we share, the common faith. In other words, while the world was doing what it does, Jude was prepared to give them a theological lesson of what Christ alone has performed by his suffering and death and what it means and why it matters. And that was Jude's initial intent in the letter. Now, as you think about this, and we have to think about this, because one, Jude is an authoritative voice for God, right? This is the Bible. And and two, the world that we live in demands this. For years, much of organized Christian pursuits in the West that would try to or attempt to drive the church's mission have been kind of a cultural war. And us against them mentality. And chiefly through either political or social activities, or if you would, cable news networks. So you have large Bands of Christians have placed enormous time and enormous energy and money and hope wrongly in those institutions. And for years, and maybe you've said under this, Christian pulpits have been devoted to what's wrong with the culture and what ought to be done to improve it, either by action groups or coalitions or us Christians uh, controlling the governing powers. 
Or, if you're going to be honest, now it's always like, well, let's have lots of me time, hide away from all the bad people in the world. And that is nothing more than a self-made world of good guys and bad guys. And some people can only function in that world if they understand the world that way. Which is why, listen carefully, which is why statistically those kinds of people, they are not reproducing domestically or ecclesiastically when it comes to Christianity. I didn't say this in the first service, but one of my teachers at school, he did this massive study on how that was true and why that was true. Because... One, theologically, God's grace is not in a cultural war. It's not the gospel. It's a religion that is based on cultural trends that are passing and turning. And listen carefully, especially young parents. If we build our lives, and if we build our families' lives on personal convictions, and not Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we are building on shifting sand. What's wrong with the culture? What's wrong with the culture is the same thing that is wrong with every culture since Genesis chapter 3. And it's this. All of us, and not some of us, in Adam have claimed a mutiny against God's rule. And each of us, and not some of us, prefer our own will and not God's. And we can't change ourselves. And beloved, be, be really mindful here and think biblically here. What is the lesson of the Garden of Eden? Rebel only once. And a mutiny has begun in the mind of God. And no speck of unrighteousness may exist in God's presence forever. And no human righteousness can connect us to God. So the government cannot change us. And education cannot enlighten a darkened mind. Self-help cannot help completely. Hiding out, you know, until the storm blows over will not do. For the storm will always remain in our fallen world until Jesus comes. That's why the gospel is always needed until the last day. So only Jesus Christ can change us by his perfect obedience and by his sacrifice. And and think about this, and his right now intercession for his beloved at the right hand of God. What is that? Well, that's the gospel. It's all Christ. And, and so the, the, the change that we seek in culture can only come through conversion and confession and worship, public-private and suffering and service all in Christ's name uh, with Christ's power because a cultural warrior, you know, whatever that is, is not content with, with the three legitimate ways that the Bible gives us, gives the church that we can exert influence on others to change their behavior in Christ's name. And if you're thinking about that, these are the three. These are our priorities. Gospel proclamation, the power of example and humble service, worship and suffering, and, and, and settled, consistent prayer. Now, if you're listening and you want to be honest, all those things are A, difficult, and B, do not come by nature naturally to any of us. So as you think about the cultural warrior, why can't the cultural warrior be content with those things? Here's just a suggestion. Perhaps maybe because those three legitimate ways that the Bible gives the church that we can exert influence on the behavior of others in Christ's name, gospel proclamation, the power of our example and humble worship, humble service, and suffering, and settled consistent prayer, the name and those things that receives the greater press and, and is bowed to, and is called on in power, is only Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully. Human pride has many clever disguises, the worst of which are dressed in religious clothes. 
You see, if we were able to pass a law that outlawed all sin, thinking that somehow that will make our culture better, then you need to go back to your Bibles and you need to read the Gospels and you need to consider the Pharisees. Consider the Pharisees who found a way to take God's beautiful moral law and twist it and pervert it so that they were devious and self-serving in it and in their minds remained undetected as lawbreakers. Until what? Until Jesus arrives on the scene and he shines his light on the whole religious scam. The Times of London. The Times of London once sent out an inquiry in their newspaper asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton read it and responded to it. He wrote a letter and he said this, Dear Sir, what is wrong with the world today? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. So the first thing that we must take note of is that Jude lives in a culture at war with God, yes. But he doesn't drop moral bombs void of Christ's saving work at Calvary on them. For what good? And where is the power in a crossless Christianity? And loved ones, we lack humility if we forget that every good thing in us, Jesus did. And that He did by grace. Secondly then, still under the same heading, I'm going to suggest to you this is a wonderfully strategic way to start a letter even if on Jude's end it might have been just unintentional. Again, verse 3, I'm going to write, I was going to write you about our common salvation, but your circumstances in the church changed everything. Okay, so so immediately I'm thinking about what what we're going to get to at the end of our talk. Verse 4, this is the circumstance. Godless individuals who have come into the church by stealth, they've kind of crept in, and they have this rebel line of thinking. And their line of thinking essentially goes like this, okay? Jude, I'm going to write to you about the common faith, but these bad guys came in, and we're going to, we're going to say this. This is their line of thinking. I am a forgiven spiritual person that is above the moral law of God and, and the law of Christ. I'm free to be as I wish and do as I wish. So, so by instinct, feeling, and by impulse and self-rule, I'm going to live the kind of life that suits me perfectly since, since grace covers everything anyway. In other words, they put themselves immediately above God's law and Christ's rule. And you would want to immediately say to them, you want to say to them, my dear friend, Jesus died for sin, not so that we can sin. God's purpose in Christ is to save us from sin, not to promote sin. And why would anyone want to make their life a devil's playground and live in a direction that is counter to the very nature and character of God himself? It makes no sense. And so Jude pins this phrase, our common faith or the salvation we share in the NIV. And commentators call this apostolic meekness. And what that means is Jude understands who he is. He's a distinguished, authoritative leader in the church. But at the same time, he was telling them by, by that little phrase, common faith or the faith we share, that he wasn't closer to God. He wasn't any better off with God. He wasn't more liked by God or loved by God than any of his Christian readers. The very thing, the very thing that these godless people would promote. So the godless people in the church, these rebels, would say, you know what, I'm above the common fray. I don't have to do the common things that the common person in the common church of Jesus Christ has to do. And Jude says, no. 
And why does he say no? And, and by the way, be, beware, loved ones, if someone tries to sell you a line of thinking. So, you know, you can live above all the common Christian life and you, you can have the edge and, and you can be ahead of the rest of us common Christians. I mean, what is Christian about that? What is Christian about that? So Jude says, listen, ours is a common faith, the, the salvation we share. So as you think about these things, we have to think about these things. We were all chosen the same way, by grace and not by faith. Thank God in my circumstance or by race or by place or ability or smarts or whatever. It was amazing grace that chose us. We all had the same Christ in exact same measure in us, in Christ. Colossians 2.10, we have been given the fullness of Christ. Christian day one, we're all completely justified by the same righteous one. In other words, in imputed righteousness, we are all equal. No saint is dressed any better than any other saint. We are clothed in the stunning righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord, which is the only reason we are accepted by God to begin with. All of us the same. We have the same privileges. We have the same responsibilities. We are on the same path. We're under the same rule, under the same direction. We're all part of one body, ministering to one another, enduring with each other. So there's no place for a pecking order. No place for a pecking order in Christ's church. And we are all loved perfectly, equally, by God in a way, listen carefully, 21st century believer, that is not, we never measure God's love by wealth, right? What do we have that we didn't receive? Or intellect that we have, or our status, or our prowess, or, or whatever else would make us believe we have such a special relationship with Christ, which is much more elite than the rest of the common Christians. Jude says, no, on earth as it is in heaven. You, you see, loved ones, that's why when a person comes to faith in Christ, we stand in awe of God alone. And we stand in humility besides our new family member, and we respect them immediately as our equal day one. And so maybe a few of you, you know, you're further along in Christian graces than the rest of us, but we're all going to end up on the same day with the same benefits of a glorified body, having been made new the same way into the image of Christ. That's point number one. That's the salvation we share. It's incredible, isn't it? Number two, then, the faith that we defend. Now, what we see here is Jude gives the first and really only imperative of his letter. And imperative is a very nice way of saying, this is what you have to do, Christian. This is a requirement. This is an essential. This is a command. And what we have to do, you can see it there in verse 3, is contend for the faith, contend for the gospel. Now, epogonizomahi, that's the, it's crazy, isn't it? That's the Greek word for contend. And it means epo, focus on, agon, agony, compete for, literally struggle appropriately with skill and commitment and opposing whatever is not of the faith, whatever is not in the gospel. So struggle for the faith within the framework of the scriptures. Struggle for the faith within the framework of Jesus and the apostles' perfect authoritative example of how we should contend for the faith. Struggle for the faith where? Well, in one sense, everywhere. We understand that. But what's the context here? Verse 4, godless people have slipped into the church of Jesus Christ. So our context here in Jude is for the faith and the community of faith. So whether it's the church local or the church global, the faith that we are to struggle for is, a, is an objective faith. 
what God has said in the gospel, he has said. Nothing needs to be added to it. And what he has done, he has done. And nothing else was required for it. That's the gospel. So the faith that we defend is, is closed in content. And it's complete in information, which means this. And again, listen carefully because our times demand it. No new news is needed from God. And no new news need change the gospel. And what's at stake here is the atonement. You see that little word in verse 3, once for all? That's a little phrase that you could say, that's the atonement. Christ satisfying God's wrath on our sin by His suffering and death on the cross once for all. And so if you're thinking about the book of Hebrews, good, you get a bonus on your card. You're not any better than any of us, but, but you still get a bonus on your card. What, what was the primary message of the book of Hebrews? Christ, when He had offered once for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. And when Christ did that, he negated any other addition to the once-for-all penal, punishing, voluntary, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice of Christ himself. And so it's clear that that was an area of attack in Jude's day. And if you're thinking, and, our, and I don't think I'm misleading here, reading a whole lot in the week that I had off and, and then months and years, the atonement is either an area of attack in our day or it's just absolutely neglected. So I read, you know, about 30 plus Christian articles while on vacation. Woo, right? Mr. Excitement. And so I, I read what people, Christian people were saying and doing and getting in trouble for. And the vast majority of them were not saying anything about the atonement, about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. They were contending with their own personal convictions and not the gospel. And I'm like, good, fine, get in trouble for that. Get in trouble for that. Listen to Spurgeon. I always consider with Luther and Calvin that the sum and summons of the gospel lies in the word atonement. Christ standing in the place of man. I, writes Spurgeon, deserve to be lost forever. You could get along pretty good with a guy like that, couldn't you? I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason why I should not be damned is this, that Christ was punished in my place. And there's no reason to execute a sentence twice for sin. So, so what did they do with Spurgeon? Well, the Baptist Union of England, this is the 19th century, they rose up against Spurgeon because of his view on atonement. You can read about it. It's called the downgrade controversy. And they mocked him. And, 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 and they probably put him to his death early. He died in his mid-50s. But that kind of thing is all around. And one of the articles I read on vacation, the one that actually spoke of atonement was in this context. It was a very large church in the Great Lake area where the pastor asked the visiting musicians to soften the words of their song. Okay, so what song? Well, the song that had the line on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. And he was like, I don't want that line. It's in Christ alone. We sing it here. And he said to them, if you would please just remove the line and say something else there instead. And the group that was involved had enough of, if you would, Jude's holy contention in them to say, look, we're going to drop the song altogether because if you take that line out of the song, then you destroy the significance of the song in the first place. And they were right. And if you, if you read about that pastor's views on morality, I can assure you that it, it kind of followed from his views on theology. And here's why I say that. 
When you go wrong on the atonement, either by ignoring it or just, it, it just not acknowledging it as truth, then it's only a matter of time, as Jude confirms for us, and history says the same thing, it's only going to be a matter of time when you will go wrong on your views of morality. You see, when men and women drift away from the given once-for-all historical Christian faith and, and, and begin to view Christianity only as this, it's a progression to God, or, or a process to God, or a way to become like God, or, or a way to make my life more relaxing, then you have died, denied the fundamental truth of what Christ's sufferings mean. And you've opened up the door to self-rule and all kinds of subjective methods, and then you've done the unthinkable. You have demoted the great work of Christ and His Lordship, His Kingship, is either you know, putty that you shape to your own liking, or to say Jesus is Lord is just empty air. Just empty air. Bunyan, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he went to jail in, in his day for contending for atonement. Whitfield, George Whitfield in his day was cast aside by his own denomination because of his views on God satisfying, uh, Christ satisfying God's wrath in our place. Cornelius Plantiga, listen to this quote. Quote, to speak of grace without sin is not good. To do this trivializes the cross of Christ. What is all the ripping and thrashing of Golgotha about? A loss of consciousness about the devastating nature of sin makes all the ripping and thrashing of the Son of God, the blood and sweat and spit and ridicule, incomprehensible and merely grotesque. A failure to take sin serious enough also renders the incarnation, the sinless and faithful life, and the resurrection of Jesus excessive or incidental. You know, it barely even matters. The sobering truth is this. Without the full disclosure on sin and the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ for them, listen to this line, it's a keeper. The gospel graces become irrelevant, unnecessary, and finally, uninteresting. Is that not our time? Irrelevant, unnecessary, and finally, uninteresting. And Jude goes on. This common faith which we are to contend for has been entrusted to the saints. In other words, what Jude is saying is this. The gospel has been personally handed over to every genuine Christian by God himself. The gospel that we are to contend for has been personally handed over to every genuine Christian uh, personally by God himself. So do you remember when I told you of how some 23 years ago now, in the early days of, of, of marriage, my wife had to rip that horrible habit I had of she'd buy me a new shirt or a new pair of pants or new shoes and I'd just leave them hanging in the closet, you know, for months. It's crazy. I just, I really, it was bad. And she had to break me from this, literally and figuratively, she had to break me from this. And so last Christmas, within five days, she, she bought me a nice shirt. And so within five days, I put the shirt on. And my son bought a nice pair of athletic shorts. The next day, I put them on. And, and then my daughter gave me this really, really hip, you know, cool shirt. It, I just, I had to stare at it for two weeks, you know, just to look at it and say, you know, you can never get into that. You know, who are you fooling? You know, just, just pretend. And so I put the, anyway, I put the thing on. What's the point? Well, you're weird. Fine. I get that one. <laughs> the second, the, the, the real point is that this glorious gospel that God himself has entrusted every genuine believer with can't not be just hanging in our closet. 
and, and, and never to be put on, never to give it a go, you know, and nothing in a reasonable, real, genuine, obedient, honest way. It can't be in there. It's a crucial message. It's, it's the only message that can save. One, the salvation we share. Two, the faith we defend. And then finally and briefly, uh, the opposition we expect. You see it there in verse 4 if your Bible is open. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless people who, who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now, if you're reading that in that context, and those horrible people are in the church, it must have been reassuring to know that, that the creeper's condemnation was way long ago foretold. You know, God knew that they were coming. And so, we should know that in every age, there will always be opposition in the church, unfortunately, to, to the biblical essentials, to, to what the gospel is and what it does. But Jude's readers were blind to those warnings. However, since the church belongs to Jesus Christ, Christian niceties and ignorance can never be an excuse for gullibility or just flat-out numbness to these things. These, these people are dangerous. They're dangerous. It's a running joke in my house that if, you ever, that if I ever fall asleep on a Friday night, don't wake me up, just leave me there like a dead animal. Because if you try to wake me up on a Friday night, on the floor, on the couch, it is the most ridiculous, absurd, meaningless movement that you'll ever see. And, and, and the reason why is because I automatically assume danger. It's creepy, I know. And so I just automatically assume that something is happening and I need to find my wife to protect me. See, I just wanted to see if you're listening. So here's the point. Well, and how does it work itself out in our day? Whether it's a physical presence in the church or a digital presence in the church or it's a paperback presence or it's a hardback book presence or I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. Jesus said the creepers are going to come. They're going to try to keep creep in. But Jude says not to worry. They haven't taken Jesus Christ who's head of the church by surprise. One quote again from G.K. Chesterton. If a rhinoceros was to enter this church right now, there is no denying he would have great power here. But I should be the first to rise up to assure him that he has no authority here. Why? Well, certain individuals written about long ago whose condemnation was written about long ago, they haven't taken God by surprise. They have no authority here. But then Jude does a clever thing and then he says, well, this is who you need to look out for. Let's do this and we're done. The first thing that marks these godless people is that, just that. They are a godless opposition. Verse 4. They're godless. And godlessness is an ugly word for a self-willed and foolish way to live. So these people are not gracious. They're not patient. Was another word for long-suffering. They're not truthful. They're not pious. They're not merciful. And they're not righteous. But they are sharp. They're, they're factional. They're grumblers, constantly grumbling. They're lawless, cruel, ill-tempered, and selfish. They are a godless opposition. Also, they are a perverted opposition. Again, verse 4, they change the grace of God into a license for immorality. So that little phrase, a license for immorality, has a double meaning. The first is probably what you suspect, sexual perversion. Meaning that this kind of person just plunges themselves into it. 
They have no remorse. They have no regret. There's no fight. There's no repentance to God at all because they think like this. Grace means I can do whatever I want anyway. But it also has another meaning that actually worries me more than the first meaning. The second meaning has this idea of essential, the stuff of the skin, how things feel to them. That's where the whole self-rule idea. If it doesn't feel right, no matter if it's right or wrong, they're just not going to yield to it. So they're not thinking like a Christian would think. Every part of our life is, is lived quorum Dio in the presence of God under his rule for his purpose. That's what Christians live. So they twist everything in religious ways to meet their sensual needs, the stuff of the skin. And, and if the feelings aren't met, then good. Or if the feelings are met, then good. And they say it's okay because even if it's wrong, grace means I can do what I like anyway because I'm covered. So there's no struggle for obedience. At all. Now, I want you to listen carefully. When lawlessness is expressed in terms of Christian freedom, when when God's moral standard is regarded as too restrictive, then we are closer to that perversion than we're prepared to admit. These kinds of people rejoice in things that our forefathers would weep over. Every bent they have is to senses and appearance and cravings and boastings of what they have and what they do. They pervert grace. They, they pervert the great word of the gospel. They pervert the grace that says there's a hope. This is the gospel that lifts my weary head. A consolation strong against despair that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find my Savior there and he's going to help me and he promises me that I am his and he is mine forever. So they pervert that. And they, and they, they ask the question of Romans 6. And they, and they answer the question wrongly. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? They say, yes, of course we should. You don't need to worry about sin. You, know, you can leave your wife. You can have a fling on the side. You, you can do what you like. What do you feel like doing? Then just do it. Saved by grace, O oh blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still have remission. So they live with no anticipation of the final judgment, no accounting at all before God. Uh, they, they live as if God's moral law has no framework in their life at all. At all. Remember what King David wrote in the Psalms? Oh, how I love your law. They pervert grace, and then finally, 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 they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. In other words, Jesus isn't king to them. Jesus isn't king, so they do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the sovereign master and ruler of the whole world, which means my life. Moral problem, they pervert grace. Theological problem, Jesus is not king. Every genuine Christian must believe what Jesus and the apostles taught. And since Jesus Christ is Lord, we do not have the liberty to believe anything we like, and we do not have the liberty to behave any way we like. Who says? Jesus says. Who is Jesus? He is the only sovereign Lord. He's king. Loved ones, there is nothing about Christianity that is a private island of subjective, imaginative inconsistencies, which are nothing more than simply directives from our own fallen nature. Nothing like that in Christianity. Our time is done the final thing is this, either, either someone fiddles with the gospel to match their mind and to match their morality, 
Or we let the gospel fiddle with us and by grace, thank God, in grace, thank God, he changes our mind and he changes our morality. And we need to think it out because Jude commanded us to. He commanded us to. Well, may God help us to understand this and and thanks be to God this morning for our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ who in our place condemned, he stood. Let's bow together and pray. God and Father, it's reasonable to say that if we continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with us. It's true. It's not that we love our personal convictions and not, not that we love our subjective ways of thinking, and, but if we love Jesus, our, our Savior and our King, nothing more, nothing much, excuse me, can go wrong with us. And we believe that. And we would ask for the grace to make us love Jesus always. Thank you that ours is a common faith. It's so reassuring. Thank you there's no hierarchy in the church of Jesus Christ except Jesus Christ as the head and we as his beloved. Thank you that the gospel is clear and it's, and it's unchanging and it's consistent and it's precious to us who believe. And thank you that you foretold a long time ago, to, and this keeps us feeling safe, Father, that these bad people would come in and try to do what they do and, and they look religious, at least semi-religious, and they have wonderful lines and I'm sure they have wonderful distractions, but they are not your truth. They say nothing about the cross. They don't rely on the cross and they come across as high-minded and high-bred and this is wrong. We want to stand with Spurgeon. The only reason why we're not condemned is because Jesus Christ stood in our place. So Father, help us to believe this and help us to contend for this reality in the place where you put us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory alone. May the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit be belong to all who obey. For Christ's sake, amen.